Hi, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the DW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in D.C., covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. Kayla, this week you've been following a story about some new Board of Trustee updates and how they're kind of changing their strategy to what they're investing in our endowment. The Board of Trustees is partnering with the Student Association after a push from student leaders earlier this year, some behind-the-scenes work, and they are going to allocate Actually, they already have allocated $2 million to go into a sustainable investment fund that will be invested in eco-friendly companies that abide by ESG standards. That's just a general set of standards. Um, It's the environmental, social, and governance um, criteria. And so that little fund will be invested in those companies, and then any returns from that fund will be funneled into the student financial aid pool. Why did the university decide to change the standards for their investments? This is kind of a conversation that's been happening for a long time. The students have been pushing for the university to divest from fossil fuel companies for about three years now, um, even longer than that even. But in 2015, there was a referendum in the student association elections. More than 70% of students voted Um, in favor of the university divesting from fossil fuels. The organization um, Fossil Free GW was also created. So there was just this huge movement towards fossil fuel divestment. It was a resolution in the student association as well. Students from Fossil Free GW were also protesting outside BOT meetings. So anyways, this has been a conversation that's been going on for a very long time. What kind of changed at the end of last summer, so summer 2017, was Logan Malik, who who used to be an essay senator. He's very invested in sustainability efforts, has spearheaded things for double-sided printing. Um, He launched the Save a Million campaign earlier this year to save a million pieces of paper by the end of the academic year. He basically made this proposal that said that we would allocate this fund. He said, you know, it's not exactly what we've been asking for in terms of fossil fuel divestment, but it's a step in the right direction. It's something that we can get the university to agree to. Um, And it would also be taking real money from the endowment and putting it in companies that are not actively hurting the environment. I spoke with Logan Malik about some of the efforts that he put in to get this fund up and running. Thanks for joining us, Logan. Yeah, happy to be on. Yeah, the administration has not always been so receptive to student ideas and the fossil-free divestment movement has been something we've been talking about for a really long time now. So can you tell me about your involvement in that movement and sort of how we got from the administration saying no to the Sustainable Investment Fund? Yeah, um, so I got involved in the fossil fuel divestment movement um, in the beginning of my sophomore year. And that um, was right after a referendum had just been passed um, in 2015, uh, calling on the or asking students whether they supported fossil fuel divestment and whether they supported the disclosure of our holdings in the fossil fuel industry. Um, that passed by 71.7 percent, and you know. Looking at that and and how significant that was, but also just looking at fossil fuel divestment as something that you know made sense for the university, uh, from my perspective, from the students' perspective, and um, you know on a moral level seemed like the right thing to do. I was involved with a lot of the coordinating for various protests and various um, actions and events. 
Um, I also was, uh, you know, I worked on the resolution. It was a fossil fuel divestment resolution in the Student Association Senate. Um, so as a senator, I wrote that and um, I did that just to follow up on the referendum and to show the administration that it wasn't only students, you know, who could not be fully educated on the issue, but it was student leaders who fully backed the voices of students. Um, and after that, you know, going into this year, I really wanted to look for a way uh, that we could make tangible progress. You know, I wanted to go forward. This is, this is the last year um, that I will be here, and I wanted to uh, be a part of moving, taking this movement a step fo forward. So... Yes. So you are graduating this year. Yes. That means no more sustainability efforts from Logan Malik. But um, where do you hope to see this fund over the next year? Where, how do you hope to see it grow and expand? Where, where do you see this going after yeah. your time here ends? That's a really good question. And I think for the most part, I'm going to leave that up to the students who come after me. I think that there is incredible leadership within the sustainability community, but also within the you know progressive community and the GW community in general. Uh, what I am hoping for is that the committee, um, the the committee on sustainable investments, uh, I hope that it's active and continues to really evaluate how the fund can be as successful as possible. I hope that the fund expands exponentially through both donations and through uh, matching from the endowment um, and I hope that students use this as a tool um, to make their voices heard I think it's not something where it's a one-and-done thing it's really an opportunity for students to get involved in this issue and I hope that students take it so this fund the sustainable investment fund is really quite significant and substantial in the sense that GW has never, um, you know, changed any portion of their endowment based on the voices of students. I really do think that this is a student initiative that came about through student activism. And, um, you know, as much as this is mine, Peaks, and Sydney's work, this is the work of years of involvement and engagement and passion for moving GW towards, you know, forward to a better place, constantly wanting to improve the community and improve who we are um, as a university. So I'm so proud that this has happened. I know that there a lot of work needs to be done in order to, uh, you know, achieve all of the, you know, asks that students have wanted. But at the same time, it's a clear indication that student voices matter and that they are capable of making change. So this also kind of begins to address affordability concerns as well, because it's going back to financial aid, right? Uh, yeah, in some ways. This is also something that SA leaders have been talking about as a mechanism for more students and alumni to donate to the university because it's going to the specific fund that is going directly back to students. So the financial aid pool will get bigger this year anyways because of the increasing dining dollars that happened a couple weeks ago. But 
then the year after this one, after the the fund is actually invested, after it's established and people can start donating to it, um, they're also trying, they as in SA leaders, are also trying to establish some sort of matching fund where people will donate to the fund and then either money is taken from the endowment to match it or another donor matches it or something along those lines, but some sort of matching component so that they're there's more money being funneled into this and then a bigger outpouring from it for the financial aid fund. Cool. And did the leaders say that this was kind of like the end of the road for divestment? No. They actually said the exact opposite, that this is a first step towards divestment. So this is something that was kind of all across the board was just like, this is a first step. This is in the right direction. Um, SA leaders are also saying they want to see this fund grow to be at least 1% of the endowment, which is like $1.7 billion. So 1% of that is a lot more than 2 million. And so that's where they're looking to grow it from here. What Logan was saying was that this is the first step to kind of reevaluating the university's uh, priorities as a whole in terms of its investment and he's saying this could be the first step to look at that especially after student pushback from this because this is really one of the first times that administrators have have taken something of this scale and actually responded to student concerns about it. Do leaders for sustainability have any ideas of what they're going to do next? Well, Fossil Free GW said that they will continue to protest outside board meetings. That's something that happens every time. Um, Fossil Free in particular, of course, like they are Fossil Free GW. They're advocating for 100% fossil fuel divestment. So that's not something that's going to end because of this fund. But then the next steps from here are growing the fund and it's getting more money into it, making sure that there are more profits from it and getting students and alumni to give back to it. Thanks, Kayla, for talking to us. Meredith, you had a story this week about a new initiative led by student veterans regarding healthcare. Yeah, I did. This veteran was in a committee policy class in the Graduate School of Political Management. Um, his name is H.W. Floyd, and he had, was charged with finding an issue and like coming up with a way to solve it. And he basically thought, well, one of the most common issues with veterans is the Veterans Affairs Department um, because there's a lot of long waits and veterans have problems that need to be dealt with like immediately and they're having to wait for months to get an appointment. Um, and so he thought, well, why not solve that um, with something on campus and make it easier for veterans to get the care they need right here on campus. So, um, and he partnered with this Milken Institute School of Public Health student Nicole Serafino to work on this initiative and basically what it is is for student veterans with a disability ratings from the Veterans Affairs Department. Um, so if they have injuries related to their time in military service, uh, they get some kind of rating from 0 to 100 based on how bad their injury is and they can get special care at GW based on that under this initiative. They've been talking with administrators in the Office of Military and Veteran Student Services uh, for about a month now, so it's kind of in its initial planning stages, um, and they've been trying to develop a formal proposal, and uh, they're actually meeting with President LeBlanc next month. What different problems have students encountered before starting to get this initiative going? What issues were they facing? You know, why is this a major concern? This is one of the reasons that inspired uh, the, the veteran students to come up with this initiative uh, in the first place is because a lot of veterans complain about the VA and the kind of like clinics that they have to go to. There are only certain 
clinics or places that you can go to get care that they have to be certified by the VA. And those are have a lot of backlog from other veterans that need care. And so um, I talked to one student, Tommy Elms, who is a graduate student, and he had a service-related injury in his back. He had a lot of sciatic pain, which he said like made his legs have like sharp pain all the time. And he had to wait for surgery for eight months because he couldn't get surgery before then. And he just said that he was constantly in pain and it, he had the injury started acting up in the fall and that's when he got his uh, initial appointment. And he had to wait until July to get his surgery. And he said his spring semester was really hard and just kind of not being able to get that care really prohibited him from, it really was hard for him to go through classes and things like that. And basically like a couple months before the surgery, he said that he was in so much pain that when he was going through commencement, he actually doesn't remember much about the day because it was just, it went by in a blur because he was in so much pain at that time. And he said he tried various things um, to like control the pain, like different painkillers, and he tried to get like some different kinds of shots and things, um, but nothing was really working and he just needed surgery as soon as possible and he couldn't get it. Would implementing this type of healthcare program be costly or would it be pretty feasible for the university to support? Well, the student veterans who are developing this said that because of the small number of veterans on campus, that it really wouldn't be a huge cost issue. So basically, there are more than 1,800 students that use veterans' benefits to go to school here, um, but not all of them are even veterans and not all of them and some of them are dependents um, and then not all of the veterans have a service related disability um, so it would be like a relatively small number and basically the organizer said there's nothing really to lose why wouldn't student veterans just say go to the colonial health center if they were having any issues well because they already get this free health care with the va and that's not offered at the chc and so they why would they pay to go to this service when they could go somewhere for free, even if it just takes like a longer amount of time? So that that is what organizers said would be really convenient and especially helpful if there was some kind of emergency need, um, especially with the flu going around right now. Mm -hmm. That's really difficult to be seen in a timely manner. And also some organizers were saying with mental health, um, veterans sometimes struggle a lot with mental health related to their time in the service and if they had some kind of emergency need um, they it would not be really convenient for them to have to wait on a hotline um, and they do have their own counselor but she's there's only one for the entire military community and she would only be available for like scheduled times since this is the the first of its kind really in terms of what type of healthcare plan it is for student veterans how were they then deciding what would go into it you know were they doing research were they more taking down individual student concerns that they were hearing what was the process behind building this yeah so essentially they as far as i know they were just building from the concerns that they had heard from other students um and they're kind of in the process where anything would be better than nothing uh they understand that the university may not be able to provide full coverage for veterans, but they would like to see some kind of at least primary care 
um, for veterans, if not full coverage. Does it look like this is going to happen? Are they hopeful that it'll be successful? The director of the Office of Military and Veteran Student Services has met with them and has been helping them develop the process. They haven't seen a formal proposal, but they said they are awaiting one and hope that this pulls through. Tommy Elms, a graduate student, told us about the herniated disc in his back that caused him a lot of pain for eight months before he could get surgery. Yeah, so I would have to go to the primary care. Let's say, let's say I, my ankle hurts from, like maybe I broke it in the Navy. Um, and I need to get seen. I have to make an appointment. I have to call the phone, like the, the VA hotline or whatever, make an appointment for my primary care doctor before I get seen by anybody else. Maybe two months. So let's say, what is it now, February? So April 12th, you get to go see primary care. Go to primary care, my ankle hurts. Okay, well, have you tried XYZ? Yes, I've done the Motrin thing. I've done, I've done stretching. Okay, we're going to send you orthopedics. Here's your consult. Make a consult. You have to call again. Say, I have a consult for orthopedics. Okay, we can get you in in July. Wait till July. I mean, we're talking five months to get seen, and then by that time, it's like, oh, you want to do physical therapy? Okay, we have to come here to do it. So I have to drive all the way to Irving Street, which mm-hmm. takes an hour to get there. You're there for an hour, and you leave, so it's three hours out of your day. It's just, it's it sucks. Thanks for telling us more about this healthcare initiative, Meredith, and please keep us updated on how it goes. Yeah, they are meeting with President LeBlanc next mm-hmm. month, and so we'll see how it goes from there. All right, Matt, what is your story that you've been working on this week? So over the past few months, there have been a recent uptick in arrests on marijuana charges. And a lot of these charges have come from pop-up parties in D.C. establishments. So basically, with the passage of Initiative 71, it the law allowed personal use of marijuana, but prohibited the commercial sale and consumption of the drug. So basically these parties were being hosted and people were showing up like sometimes 10 people, sometimes 100, upwards of 100, I mean uh, upwards of 500 people were showing up. There would be lines out the door and so this was becoming a real issue that um, MPD felt they needed to address. So if it's le- if it's illegal to buy and sell marijuana then what how is this playing out. So with the passage of Initiative 71, it allowed for the recreational personal use of marijuana, but prohibited the commercial sale and public use of the drug. So what's happening at these pop-ups was attendees were getting free weed gifted to them with each purchase of an item of likewise value, be that a comic book or a baseball card or a piece of artwork. And this was going on for a while and I think event companies saw the market in it and decided to take it to private events at establishments. Were they marking up the prices of these things or like how much would you pay for these sorts of items and like how much weed would you get with it? Basically, the items could go from anything to 40 to 60 to 100 dollars and you would probably get a couple grams of weed with that. So as far as these parties go, like what kinds of venues were they at around D.C.? Um, These parties were all around D.C., and sources tell me that they began at basements and backyards and initially were just a few people maybe and a few vendors. Like, it was very homespun and and, and people were intimately knowing each other, basically. And the transition between commercial um, events and the shift to that uh, made it a lot less community-based. A lot more people were coming in 
very like like lines out the door and you know and it became especially in neighborhoods that were affluent like Adams Morgan it became something that the neighbors were complaining about and something that needed to be dealt with so you went to one of these to do research for the story so tell me a little bit about your experience so basically there are a lot of these DC cannabis events that you can find online and I scrolled through a number of them and saw the one that I liked the most which was kind of a spoken word music infused event I signed in like and got the information ticket information sent to me to my email the address the address was not available like at first glance so it wasn't listed on eventbrite oh no i mean it's like a death wish probably to put your i mean especially like to have the event online in the first place is kind of like you're asking to be raided by the police but to give a location then would be like doubly uh stupid i guess for event organizers at this point so just to clarify these are illegal under initiative 71 yes basically the consumption in public spaces or the selling in public spaces well the selling in general but then the consumption in public places is outlawed so if there's any consumption of marijuana at these parties which there were oftentimes um I heard reports of like dabs being tried out at these vendors, at these pop-ups. And so I like uh, dabs, dabs and edibles and concentrates, all varieties of weed are outlawed under I-71. So if a pop-up was having any of these things, including gifting, they would be operating outside the law. But technically the gifting is legal because you can under Initiative 71 gift like a certain amount, like it's, it's a small amount of weed to other people as long as there's no money being transferred in like in terms of gifting colorado had a similar law in its first year of legalization and someone had the bright idea of using this loophole of gifting to legally gift weed to people but it was shot down by legislators actually in colorado saying this is not it's it's still considered an offense because you're still selling it but DC, as I've been t- like, and the the advocacy group that I talked to um, said that this law still kind of, apl- I mean, this law still kind of applies to those event those events of gifting and individual transactions. It's just they are not enforced because they can't really be on an individual level around the city. It's impossible. So going back to your experience when you showed up to this event, um, so you got the email about the location. Um, and showed up and so then what happened when you arrived so basically got off columbia heights walked a couple blocks to this undisclosed location and when i got there there was no one there so it was at a bar it was at a bar yes and it was at the the bar that would rent spaces and sublet for event organizers so when you arrived you like asked where it was and what happened then yeah i was like oh, is this the token word? (laughs) And he was just like, no, buddy. It's been either relocated or canceled. He had no idea, basically. He told me to contact the organizer. And, um, of course, that's very elusive in and of itself to go through Eventbrite trying to contact the event organizer. So I know you spoke to a lot of different people. Like, you talked to a few students and you talked to advocacy groups and different 
also different business owners about what they're going to do now that these events are getting busted more by the police and like with this gray area, how they're going to navigate that. So what did some of them say? Well, I think the resounding opinion was that they had no control over this and that with the legislation and the stagnation of I-71 still three years in this kind of primitive state of the legislation, um, like that they really are committing a civil disobedience kind of by continuing on in the state of this inaction was their reasoning into it. So, I mean, while the organizers that I was talking to said that there was a lot of talk about retail weed and that there was even a board of elections meeting coming up in March, that it was very unlikely and he wasn't even going to show up because it was so unlikely that this would get past even like the vote, like the, the veto stage of the initiative ballot. So I know you spoke with Joe Tierney, who runs a website called The Gentleman Toker and reviews different marijuana gifting services. So what did he have to say about what he thinks the future of these events might be? Right. I think he is under the opinion that these events will not really die down, so to speak, but may downsize in terms of popularity, like number of attendance, but that it's the community, he says, is highly fractionalized, which means that even if a party isn't being held at a bar space that holds 500 people, that there might be um, more house events. And he said, basically, it's kind of a numbers game with the community right now. And that if you're hosting eight kind of secret pop-ups a night, two of them may be raided, but then the other six would still be going on. All right. Well, thank you, Matt. That's interesting. Thanks for giving us an inside look. Anytime, Liz. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Leah Potter and Meredith Roten and features culture editors Liz Preventure and Matt Dines. This podcast is produced by assistant video editor Ariana Dunham, managing editor Tyler Loveless, and assistant copy editor Emma Tyrell. And music is produced by Olk Studio. Special thanks to Kayla Harris for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. See you next week.